0: This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response, and recovery, and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. and welcome back
1: for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Here in the Asia Pacific, we're pretty used to disasters, whether it's bushfires, floods, or storms, it feels like we certainly kept busy but today we're heading to a country in South America where there are over 40 volcanoes that are actively monitored, earthquakes, tsunamis, regular large wildfires and storms. We're gonna talk about disaster risk reduction in Chile, one of the most disaster prone areas in the world according to the World Bank. Andrew, who do we have on the show
0: today? Sounds intense, doesn't it, Josh? Today on the show, we're excited to be speaking with Cristobal Mena, who is the Deputy National Director at the Chilean National Emergency Office. He grew up living in a fire station. He has training in the UK, US and Malaysia and followed his passion for helping others into his career. Today we'll be chatting with Cristobal about Chile's internationally recognized governance model for disaster risk reduction, their transparent approach to disaster risk information and their approach to working with local government to determine vulnerability as well as Cristobal's journey to where he is today. It's gonna be a great show. Let's head across
1: to South America and talk disaster risk reduction.
0: Hi Cristobal, and welcome to the show. As we heard in the introduction, there's a long list of hazards in Chile. Can you start by taking us through some of these hazards and what they mean for you?
2: Well, thank you very much, Andrew and Josh for, for inviting me here for this podcast. Um, and yes, um, Chile has uh, several hazards uh, in our country. Um, probably what, what keeps us oh, probably what's the, the biggest challenge nowadays and I think it's not only for Chile but um, for probably a lot of countries, it's the issues related to extreme weather events. Uh, I think that the uncertainty that the climate, uh, climate crisis is bringing, uh, it's actually something that uh, it's challenging all disaster management agencies or how we cope with this. Uh, this, this phenomenon in a way exacerbates the hazards. Uh, I, I always uh, make the point that the climate change is not a hazard by itself, it just put the other hazards in a in more extreme uh, version, you may say. And this is uh, probably uh, aligned a lot uh, with what the, the World Economic Forum uh, said on, on, on the global risk landscape for this year, when actually uh, extreme weather events is probably the most likely uh, risk uh, of all the risks from, from geological, economical, societal, uh, Stream weather events—it's a top one on impact and top four on 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 on, on the likelihood. So um, I think it's important that that uh, it's something that we are really really aware of, that we need to have uh, better weather monitoring capacities, better early warning systems for this kind of, of assets. Uh, as the same as as in Australia, uh, we share also. The wildfires, which is also a major hazard, that it's also uh, exacerbated by uh, climate change and this climate crisis. So, yeah, that's probably what for us it's 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 uh, the the nowadays the, the biggest challenge because all the other hazards are probably Chile better known because of earthquakes. Uh, that's something that we have fairly managed uh, due to our, our recurrent experience with them. We have strong building codes and. And the community is also aware of that, so I think that nowadays we have to move to the other type of assets.
0: And interestingly, across the world, in some locations, we're already seeing the start of rising sea levels and those sort of things. Are there any signs in Chile of the climate disaster already occurring?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. It's it's evident, and uh, as, as I'm saying, we have uh, more extreme weather events. Uh, we have uh, extreme rains in, in that probably weren't recorded in 50, 40 years or more. Uh, we have a major wildfire on 2017 uh, that actually was named as a sixth generation uh, type of wildfire. Uh, and of course it was exacerbated because of extreme heat wave and and also have a very prolonged uh, uh, dry season in, in Chile. It had lasted uh, a drought that it has lasted um I think that at least ten years that we have in some sort of part of Chile a drought that also exacerbates uh, this issue. So we are seeing that we are seeing it every day. Actually, we have some, some also some climate change migrants within Chile. Also, uh, so so that that's definitely something that we are we are seeing and something that also we're tackling. Uh, our, our our disaster risk reduction policy uh, has a, a complete area that it's, it's dedicated to how we adapt. Climate change uh, so yeah we're we totally aware of that, and we also see that that's becoming a big big problem uh, in our hands
0: scary stuff
1: it's very scary stuff. I'd just like to pause for a minute and and kind of delve a little bit into your life journey because I think Andrew and I were doing a little bit of research um, for the for this podcast and and you have a really interesting background of where uh, you know where you've come and, and and where you are now in terms of the disaster risk reduction space and, and emergency management and like a lot of our guests, it's not an obvious career choice. People don't, you know, sitting there at six years old go, oh, I want to be an emergency management professional. Um, can you tell us how you came to be the deputy national director at the Chilean national emergency office? What, what was that journey? And, and how have you got to the space that you are now?
2: Well, I think you're spot on that, that, that usually, uh, we don't go straight forward to executive management actually stumbled a lot um, in this process. Uh, funny story that's that, um, when I, when I left school when I was 18, uh, I wanted to become a priest, a Catholic priest. And I started to sort of uh, prepare for that. At some point, I realized that religion wasn't my thing. <laughs> uh, but I realized that actually that what, I, what it really moved me it was uh, public service and how I could serve my community in, 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 a, in, a, in a very strong commitment to that. And... Um, Then I I really was a a, a very, very committed volunteer firefighter in Chile. Uh, As as you may know that we're volunteers, Uh, actually, we pay a a monthly fee for being a firefighter. I lived in the station for almost nine years, and uh, so I was really committed to to firefighting because, again, I had this sense of of public service, of actually uh, serving my community. And I finished my undergraduate in political science, and... um, and had sort of a, a, a brief uh, time working in politics. And then sort of I realized, well, I like by being firefighter disasters. I like public policies. And then I sort of saw that disaster risk management. is like something that you could put together in a way. Uh, and then I sort of moved into my actual career. Uh, I started working in a, in a major natural gas company in Chile. Uh, as an emergency manager, uh, then I, w- I went to do my master's in in London and UCL on uh, on risks and resilience and then I worked for the World Bank in, in several countries uh, and then I came to chile so uh, for being a deputy director so it 's been a sort of a, a very long trip uh, to to actually be here uh, but I think that that's that's sort of a challenge for all of us as disaster managers of how we can depict that uh, this career can actually, you can start it from the beginning. You don't have to stumble uh, through uh, many, many years to actually uh, develop this career.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it's such an interesting journey you've come on. Um, And it's interesting about the political science study because um, Josh made a good point to me the other day around how when Josh and I were at school, there's a big push for science, technology type subjects, maths, engineering, and we're both engineers. And then um, he kind of believes that the next sort of 10 years and the next sort of decade is really around – the more sort of social science, like political science, behavioural science. And it's interesting you have that background because I think it's so valuable, um, the way we negotiate with people, with communities, in disasters. It just makes a whole heap of difference, understand that political now, that political background to to make those decisions during disasters. So I'm wondering what, um, if you were now reliving your life or advising someone else who's going to take on a journey into emergency management, what, what are the key skills or what are the key sort of study areas that you would suggest to someone just looking to get into the industry?
2: Well, I think that, that that's a very good point. Um, we usually um, and probably have this sort of wish list of what to do for the last probably 20, 30 years that we sort of know how to reduce this as a risk. But somehow uh, we're not producing the, the results. And as you say, probably it's because uh, we need to, to sort of the, the focus now on more on the social issues on the policy issues particularly if, if we if we take the concept of disaster risk management probably we know a lot, a lot about, about a lot of about disasters a lot about risk but about management that's probably an issue that, that we have to, to tackle to actually make these things happen and actually this wish list becomes uh, something and um, in that sense, I think that, that probably the, the first key skill that probably uh, as a political scientist uh, you learn or as a social scientist is a systemic lens. It's, it's saying that the problems are not uh, linear, they're not simple, uh, and that means that actually uh, you have to have a, a more broader approach, of the, and, and also don't be afraid of the complexity that, that, uh, that underlies, in this case, uh, reducing and managing risk. I think also it's important that the, that, uh, the skills of effective communication and think that, again, we have a very thorough uh, wish list, but somehow it's not uh, permeating. Somehow, somehow it's not connecting to people, and, and particularly into, to policymakers and decision makers. And I think that there's a big challenge on how we produce effective communication, how we empathize with the other person that's in the other side. And I also, and and you mentioned also behavioral science, because usually this wish list, it's designed for the institutional level or the governance level. Probably we also talk about communities, uh, national governments, but not that often that we talk about people, about their psychology. And when we look at behavioral science, there's a lot of cognitive biases and a lot of uh, things happening in our heads. They actually, uh, we have to take care of that to actually produce the change that we want to make on 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 the policies and on, on the actions of our communities. So I think that, that that's something that we also have to explore more. I think that behavioral science on the social risk management can be become a big thing, and I think that there's a huge space to develop. Uh, uh, research and, and policies on, on that side.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's certainly, I think, disasters affect all matters of life and um, when you have that kind of, that interaction between politics, between um, the community, between government, it's really sort of having that um, that emotional intelligence and that ability to have that communication is really important. In 2008, the Chitan volcano erupted in southern Chile and it was the first major explosion of a rhyolite volcano since 1912, huge. Plumes of ash travelled across South America and they lasted for months and it was just a, a huge disaster for the whole of the country. So I'm wondering, volcanoes aren't something we have here in Australia that are really active. Um, can you tell us more about what the risks are posed by these volcanoes?
2: Well, actually, in Chile we have uh, almost 2,000 volcanoes in Chile. Wow. Of- probably 90 are active. And of those 90, we have uh, a ranking. Actually, after the check 10 uh, eruption, uh, and of those 90, we have 45 that are act- actively monitored. So, so yes, we, we have uh, a lot of, of uh, hazards related to uh, volcanic risk. But the interesting thing is that, uh, fortunately, uh, the... We have not too many exposure to them. Uh, most of the communities uh, don't live near to volcanic uh, eruption zones, and if there are some, are very, uh, scarce, they're very scarce. There, there's just some around with low density. So that's something that really uh, also has uh, helped us to reduce the risk. If we if we just take the Japan example, uh, almost eight thousand. People were evacuated. Chaitan is a very, very uh, small town in, in the in the Patagonia, in the south of, of Chile, uh, with a lot of connectivity issues. Uh so it was a big chance to evacuate those, those people, but we didn't have any any casualties actually. So so again, um, I think that, that that also it's because we have uh, a good disaster risk management system that's been trained uh regularly, uh unfortunately. Uh, to, to cope with this kind of, of disasters. So, so it, it was uh, sort of a big turning point, particularly on, on, on how we monitor the, the volcanic hazards.
1: I think that's a really important point. Um, we're only having a conversation. I know he's a good friend of yours. Uh, Christobal is Kevin. Um, we had him on a few weeks ago talking around, you know, why there is no such thing as natural disasters. I just picked up there. You know, it's one of the key things we talk about in that space. It's that exposure to hazards. Can you... Help us understand, in terms of the landscape for Chile, why is that, um, you know, that comment around there's no such uh, thing as natural disasters, why is that so evident for Chile and what's the evidence in Chile? Um, I, I guess you just uh, um, unpack that a little bit for us then, it, you know, for the, the hazards around the volcanoes, it's that there's no exposure there, there's little exposure, so, you know, it never gets to a point where it is a disaster. But I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more for us in the context of Chile and your disaster landscape.
2: Well, of course, we... And it's a great thing that we don't talk about natural disasters. I think that, and it's something that's not just semantics. Um, I think in Chile, uh, if we take risk and, and we say, uh, when we stand risk, uh, Chile first is a very diverse country. So we have a very different geographical context, which probably that's sort the, of the only natural thing about this, that we have uh, a very different uh, geography from the extreme north we have the driest desert in the world to Patagonia and Antarctica. So that that poses a big challenge on on how we we manage uh, risk on one side. But when we put the lens on exposure, then we start seeing that we uh, start to produce policies in Chile, for instance, to have a better urban planning that reduces uh, the exposure. But still we have uh, a lot of of issues uh, as a developing country on the vulnerability. We still have... Uh, areas with uh, poverty, we have some marginalization, we have some unregularized uh, organizations in some points. Uh, there's still also, as we talked before, we have uh, seven of the nine criteria of vulnerability of climate change. So uh, that also uh, exacerbates the vulnerabilities in our country. And uh, so when we see this overall, uh, uh, Sort of view of, of, of the problem, well then Chile uh, and, and, and disasters, it's not something that's natural, something that it's a, a result of our development gaps, of some of our choices. And also, as for instance, in the case of earthquakes, that's why in Chile, you can have a 6.5, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake, and probably not too much will happen. Uh, And that's because we uh, understood that those are not natural, so it depends on our choices. So that's why we enforced and we developed strong building codes. Uh, There's a a nice phrase that I I always like to say, that earthquakes don't kill people, buildings do. Yeah. And that's the thing, that when we talk about natural disasters, it's not the earthquake that kills it, which would be the natural thing. Actually, the building falling down. It's a community that's settled in a risk-prone area. So again, it's a, it's a matter of our choices, uh, and that's something that we really embed in in, in Chile, uh, particularly in the National Emergency Office. Uh, we don't talk ever about natural disasters. We always talk about disasters as the, as as a, as, a, as a concept by itself, which also becomes with understanding that we have to work to reduce risk and that we own uh, the risk in a way.
1: I love how your culture is is moving is moving forward at a faster pace, and it seems like for some of us uh, over this side of the of the world, I know you know we've had a lot of um, discussion on this podcast uh, in the emergency management space, and it seems like you know even in the high levels, the highest levels of our government, there's a there's a, a royal commission into and it's and it's titled natural disasters in Australia. So you know we're we're struggling and, and we're we're on that journey, but I think you know hopefully having these conversations, um, we will start to change that, you know, that narrative and we can go somewhere. But we really interested just one point there, that diverse range of risk. What are the lessons that you've learned from that? I know a lot of our listeners, um, you know, in New Zealand, that same, that same feeling of diverse risk. Um, what are some of those lessons you've learned around how you actually can manage that, that diverse portfolio of hazards?
2: I think first is that, again, to just uh, raise awareness. I think that, that's key, that, that uh, transversally, uh, because of our, there's sort of, there's sort of a theory that, that sort of the, the culture of Chile and, uh, and and the way that we are, in a way, it's also molded because of disasters. Uh, throughout the history in Chile, we have several major earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, fires, etc., And that's sort of, Made a type of of, of 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 Chilean in a way a uh, Chilean that it's more resilient that it that it, it's capable of, of moving forward uh, in case of adversity, but that requires also uh, awareness and also uh, I think it's also a lot of with memory. Mm. We usually forget very quickly the, the last disaster, uh, and in some cases in Chile there's a lot of a storytelling, a lot of what your grandfather lived or what your dad lived, uh, and that sort of on also with connected with a lot of, of traditional knowledge. There's uh, some indigenous communities that they have a very rich uh, mythology about disasters, and that also uh, sort of uh, creates a, a more thorough knowledge of, of, of it. Also, I think that one of the things that we've learned is that uh, it's sort of responsible and also probably naive to hide things we have a very strong commitment to transparency. Mm. Uh, you can check the, the webpage of the National Emergency Office, it's, it's uh, onemi.cl and there you can find hazard maps open of, of tsunami risk, wildfire probabilities, volcanic eruptions, you can find uh, the level of, of vulnerability of local governments. Uh, etc it's 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 so open because we understand that if we give information to people people will take it and and we will empower them to make better decisions so that 's something that we've been learning that we have to be more open every time share the lessons don't forget those lessons uh, and and sort of push forward to to create a, a preventive culture uh, in the country uh, that's a, that's one of our, our main goals actually uh, one of the three strategic focuses of the National Emergency Office is preventive culture. Oh. As a, of, a, of our strategic planning is actually uh, preventive culture. So that's something that, that has to be really embedded in in in, in everyday policy, in everyday work. And I think that uh, if you work in that sense, then then probably things will happen. If you just wait for the, the next disaster, then it's too late.
1: You, you were saying before, um, and I know we had this conversation when we were planning for this podcast and we were just catching up, this idea that behaviour change uh, comes from an experience. You know, you need to uh, – we, we see a lot of behaviour change and a lot of movement in behaviour change, especially when someone's had an experience of a disaster or experienced something. Is there a way to artificially induce that in people or are we purely stuck to the fact that – some people are just not going to listen until they experience a disaster for themselves.
2: Well, probably the the, the, the short question is, is a short answer. It's probably yes, uh, but but uh, but it, that doesn't mean that it's it's easy. Mm. Because again, we are talking about uh, psychology. Uh, we're talking about uh, deep uh, cognitive biases that we have to sort of go around them uh, and probably use a lot of nudging and other kind of techniques to actually, uh, change that kind of, of, of behavior. Mm. But as they probably the the, 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 and as I said before, so I think that the, the most important thing is that, and it's very studied that you have to raise awareness. You have to really, uh, make as real as possible as the real experience, uh, that people can actually connect to that if you just sort of sort of an image that, that, that a hurricane will happen, for instance, but you never experience it or you really don't have a, an opportunity to actually sense what this really means. Probably one of the cognitive biases that will start is the optimism bias. Mm. One of the, the bias uh, relates that we always think that it won't happen to, uh, to me. It will happen to someone else.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: uh, uh, and that's one of the, the one of, of, of those biases there are, Actually, I think that there's more than 200 uh, biases recorded. Um, But again, so you have to share the the knowledge and and the real experience in a way that this will happen. Also, make it simple. I think that we should talk about return periods, about uh, probabilities, and that really doesn't help. Mm. Because uh, people, they they won't understand. We will say there's one in a hundred years Flood. Well, that happens, and if that flood happens, then you will wait for another 100 years for the next one. Yeah. Uh, and actually, that happened in the UK, uh, 2015, I think, that there was a lot of people sort of complaining that, hey, you told me two years ago that that, that was the 100-year uh, flood, now, this, <laughs> now, now in two years, now it's the, the next, one. how is this happening? You know, and again, it's because we have to, I think, to rethink how we communicate how we communicate effectively so that that lessons that we learn actually become uh, action.
1: I think, and I love, I I love your officer's approach around transparency. I really think, uh, unless someone's going to experience the hazard uh, firsthand, the next best thing we have is actually to be transparent with the information, to, to, to actually build that awareness. If we can't do that through actually someone going through an experience that transparency, I guess, is the next best tool that we have in our toolkit um, to bring awareness to hazards. So I just want to commend your office on that. I think that's a that's a lot of listeners should be bringing up their ears and listening to that and looking at how they can actually implement that strategy within their own um, organisations.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, you've had... A number of big events, the Chitin volcano, many other earthquakes and that sort of thing. And that's really, I imagine, has shaped your governance model, which we'll come to shortly, because it's quite exciting talking about governance uh, in a disaster risk management approach. But I wonder for those people listening online, can you explain how um, the Chilean disaster risk management model is structured? So you have a, quite a centralised approach, but can you explain how it's structured and the role of local government in this compared to, say, your office? Yes,
2: definitely. Well, we have, a, as you say, it's a centralised approach. Chile, it's a Unitarian state. It's not a federal state, so, so everything is it, it's in, in one place. Uh, we depend of, of the Ministry of Interior and Public Security and uh, the, the conception uh, uh, around the system is that there's a system a national protection system with uh, several members uh, that comes from the public sector from the private sector from NGOs from academia and all of those capacities all of the, that knowledge uh, it's coordinated by the National Emergency Office. So, what we do is we coordinate the capacities to reduce risk, and also to manage emergencies when they happen. And this uh, is replicated in, in, in each level of, of government. We have two main principles. One, it's mutual help. So everyone that's in the system has to help each other uh, to do the, the achieve the objective that it's, it's it's presented. If it's reducing risk or it's one it's an emergency. And the second principle is uh, scalability, uh, which means that disasters uh, start from the local level and they go upwards in a way. The same as risk. If the local capacity, for instance, is not capable of managing a risk because it requires uh, more money, more technical capacities, etc., then it goes upwards to the provincial level. If, if the province has some budget for that, okay, that's it. If it's more complex, that goes to the, to the regional and then to the national. Uh, so again, we, we always believe that, that risk, if, or, or if it's emergencies, in either case, they start and they end at the local level. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't depend, it doesn't matter if, if you go upwards, and, but, but at the end, it usually still ends at the local level. Uh, and that's for us, it's, it's, it's a key point, because uh, as I said before, uh, we have such a different context that uh having the idea that we could manage everything from 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 the from the central office uh without having the the particular context, it's 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 really it's actually impossible i think and again i think it's it's naive to think that you can manage properly risk if you don't consider the the local subtleties actually moving forward uh, and nowadays we are having we have a national platform that probably we we talk about that when that in, 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 we we'll talk about governance. But nowadays, we're moving to regional platforms because we understand that we have to go to a, a more contextualised, a more local approach to produce uh, the policies.
0: I think that local knowledge is so important, having the development of that based on um, what the local risks are, local hazards. It's, it's just so important to have things that actually work. And I was wondering, uh, it made me think of that last question about the local, um, I mean, the, the people who live uh, in those communities, do you think there's a, a general trend either way to becoming more resilient or more reliant? Like are you seeing a trend in Chile at all for people becoming become more reliant on emergency services to say, hey, um, I'm just going to call an emergency service like I would a taxi? Um, is that something you're seeing or do you think people are becoming more attuned to the local hazards over there and going, well, it's time to prepare. I better do something about it and get involved in their own sort of risk ownership.
2: I think we're moving to, to more of the second scenario. For instance, our, our big, big sort of, of turning point was the, the 2010 earthquake in Chile. Yeah. Uh, it was an 8.8 uh, with a mass tsunami which uh, revealed a lot of, of gaps. Actually, the UN came here. We asked as a, as a government that the UN came here to sort of make a report and they found 75 gaps. Most of them were related to uh, uh, governance, institutional level, but also on preparedness. And and then we had uh, uh, two major earthquakes in 2014 and 2015 uh, with tsunami and the results were completely different. Uh, and that sort of been showing that from one side, the the government, the, the public institutions in a way, they have been learning the lessons and implementing those, uh, closing those gaps that we found on, on that report, for instance. But also I think it's really interesting that we've been seeing that people is actually uh, owning risk uh-huh. and, and, and being aware that they have to be prepared. For instance, we have a, 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 a drill program, program that we usually make several drills uh, in the, in the, in the, the year uh, for regions. So it's, it's big drills, uh, probably 300,000 evacuees or 400,000 evacuees in each drill, and several throughout the year. Uh, and, and so people nowadays, they, they, they know the evacuation routes, they know their gathering points, which also coupled with the transparency that we talked before because that's also open, so you can check where's your closest uh, evacuation zone. And also with me moving uh, to also train people. Uh, actually, the National Emergency Office has a, a civil Protection Academia within the office. So, so the role is also to train communities, uh, teach them how to be prepared. We have a partnership with FEMA uh, where we uh, implement the, the CERT courses uh, in Chile. So, we also have uh, community emergency response teams uh, in Chile which is also very interesting because sometimes it requires some money. So we also have been doing some uh, private public partnerships to finance those courses.
1: Interesting. So
2: sometimes, sometimes some big companies, they want to have some some CSR, some corporate some social responsibility programs. And instead of, of, I don't know, of just giving some some laptops, they prefer to put that money on making community based responses, for instance. So again, I think that the, the whole society is understanding that, that we can prepare, that's the first thing, that it's not natural, disaster that's a result of our decisions, and that there are ways to do it, and we are providing those, those tools, we are facilitating that process. I think that that's, that's our role as an emergency office, as a coordinator, is to facilitate, to, to uh, sort of set the, the preconditions for this to happen.
1: Yes, I really like the model of CERT. We actually had um, uh, two individuals from Missouri who who run a CERT team uh, uh, over there on a podcast, on our earlier podcast, and a, a great initiative around how local people um, and communities can stand up and empower themselves in, in, in the face of, of you know hazards and disasters. Uh, I want to turn now. I know you're uh, actually part of the representation for Chile for for APEC uh, on the emergency preparedness working group, um, and and my understanding is that group really aims to raise the capacity of the region to prepare for and recover from uh, disasters and a really interesting initiative in Chile which you presented to the APAC group is the measurement of the underlying factors of, uh, of vulnerability in communities can you unpack that a little bit more for, for our listeners uh, listeners around what that is and and what you've been working on in that space
2: yes thank you it's uh, well actually it's, it's sort of been our our our, our most popular product probably that we've been pushing in the, in the last uh, years. Um, and, and we put it, we, we started with APEC because APEC has a particularity. APEC is the Asia Pacific Economic uh, Forum. And um, in, 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 in in the Asia Pacific region, uh, probably one, one of the largest or most of the largest economies in the world and oh. also the largest disasters in the world. Yep. So that's a, a bad mix in a way. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we've been pushing actually a lot in the emergency preparedness working group. And, and this methodology, uh, which was also used as a contributing paper for GAR 2019, it's a methodology that uh, the, the aim is to uh, really uh, contextualize or, or characterize uh, the local risk at the local governments. So for that, we have a, a, a survey that has That's based on four dimensions. Climate change variables, such as uh, extreme weather events happening in the local government, the rates of erosion, and, and other variables on, on, on that area. The second dimension is urban planning. So we also assess what's the level of, of, of the instruments for planning that are, are in place. Uh, do they build in, 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 in hazard-prone areas, for instance, or not? Uh, etc. There's, there's a lot of variables on that. Then we have a third dimension, that it's uh, uh, the social demographic characteristics of, of that uh, local government. So for instance, we measure the amount of, of people with disabilities, for instance, in that local community. So that also gives you sort of a, a, a level of, of vulnerability. Uh, and finally, uh, we also have a variable of governance. But we also assess issues of governance from if they have implemented, for instance, uh, local plans for emergency response, plans for reducing risk, uh, if they have a, a, an emergency committee established or not. Uh, and again, it's 41 variables uh, packed in these four dimensions. And, and we're really pushing that. that uh, I think it's, it's a method that, that it can be easily adapted and adopted. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so I think that, uh, and it's also all the results in Chile, again, about transparency, all the results are published in, our, in a web page. So each local government can see their level of vulnerability and also the report that we produce for each local government on where are the gaps. And, and finally, what we also do is, is we don't only give them the gaps. We also give them sort of a roadmap of how, how they can close those gaps.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. What what a good project. That's something. I think that's something that really. So they want to give them the solution. Yeah. I think something. It's a great project that something can be adopted in a lot of other parts of the world where there's a real sort of. Um, opportunity to improve things and that see that real change in, um, in their approach to disaster risk reduction. That's, that's really good. Moving on now to governance. And I know uh, the Sendai framework mentions that it's, a, its second priority is a strong governance model. So I'm wondering, can you take us through the national governance model for disaster risk reduction in Chile? Because I believe that's been held up as a bit of a model, as a guide for other countries as well. Can you take us through that in a bit more detail?
2: Yes, actually, uh, uh, it's been a month, I think, that, that uh, the UNDRR published uh, sort of sort of uh, works into action, that sort of uh, policy papers or sort of uh, uh, documents to actually help to implement this sort of wish list I was talking before uh, to make it into action. Uh, and the last one was about how to produce governance and particularly how we produce uh, multi-sectoral governance models. And Chile was recognized as a, as, a, as, a, as a good practice with our national platform for disaster risk reduction. The, the model is it's, it's fairly simple. We understand that the disaster risk is systemic. So in order to to manage risk, we have to put everyone together to produce policies. Uh, so this, uh, and probably usually there are national platforms in several countries, but usually probably they are more like held able, more political, but they don't produce the actual policy. Here, it's the other way around. We have usually a representative that is more political, but also more technical representative of each ministry, of NGOs, of the academia, of the private sector. And what we do is that we divide the platform in several working tables, depending on different topics, from gender and DRR, uh, heritage and DRR, uh, institutional institutional frameworks, etc. And we put them all together with clear objectives on what they have to work and what they have to produce, which is based on the national policy. Because the national policy uh, is sort of the, the five uh, focus that we have. But with the national policy, we have a national plan. So it's not just the, the, the declaration of what we must do. We have a specific plan. It's actually, it's for the next, the next 10 years with responsible institutions, uh, metrics, concrete actions, and the, and the, and the objective of, of this platform is to make those actions happen. But again, we do it in a systemic approach, in a, in a, in a holistic approach, in which we're gathering as much people as possible. Nowadays, we have uh, 190 organizations participating on the national platform. We started with uh, 60. Wow. Uh, Until 2012, and it's been growing massively. And and again, it's producing uh, public policies for reducing risk, but with a very uh, holistic approach.
1: I think it's really interesting that the conversation around governance, because I think a lot of people, um, you know, often roll their eyes at governance and it's one of those afterthoughts, I think for some people and some institutions, but what I'm hearing from this conversation with yourself, Christobal, is that, you know, that good governance really sets a strong foundation to take action on the ground. And if you don't have that good governance in the background, um, you're not going to be efficient or effective on the ground. Um, it's been a great conversation. And, and just to wrap it up, I've got two more questions. What's next for Cristobal in, in his journey in emergency management? And what's next for the Chilean National Emergency Office? I reckon the US president's free should go for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <yet. laughs> uh, um. For me, well, uh, I, I'm still working, uh, and I'm really uh, striving here in Chile to 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 actually, as you say, set those pillars uh, to make this 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 approach sustainable in the future. Um, I'm also participating of, of of a graph of the global risk assessment framework uh, in two working groups: in the communicating risk, and also in the risk trends uh, group, which we're sort of thinking on on how we implement uh, the what's what's needed to actually reduce risk as a global approach so that's something that's is, is really uh being fun for me i'm also starting now a training on on the climate leadership corps uh, It's uh it's uh, this foundation created by al Gore that's also really interesting and, and for the national emergency office uh we are uh, I also think we're really working and the challenge is nowadays to set those pillars uh what we've talked uh, through this, this podcast, with, uh, with, which again, I, I think it's been a really fun and interesting conversation, is that all of this uh, requires uh, a strong institutional and governance uh, basis. And that's what we're working on. We are still uh, working on a, on a bill to produce the national uh, seal protection system. Uh, we have to uh, revise the, the national policy. So there's a lot of challenges on that area, on how we, we really make this governance stronger and more sustainable in the future.
0: I've got one quick question to ask you in a second, but I think what I've taken from the conversation today is the importance of governance and that transparent approach to disaster risk reduction, which you've really um, identified and exemplified in Chile. And I think, too, that without being in the public service, it's very hard to be able to influence and change and make a difference in that space. So I'm wondering, for someone who's starting out in emergency management now or considering the public service, what advice would you say about getting involved? Would you sort of say go private, go public? How do you make the biggest impact, do you think, in, in disaster risk reduction?
2: It might sound that cliche, but I think that the first thing that it's to look into yourselves and see what's the motivation, um, what's the passion, what's the driving force that's moving you to work on this. Yeah, It can be having a stronger community, it can be aiming for sustainable development, adapt to climate change, or it can be in a much personal level, like, like your family. If you have children, do you want to give them a better and more sustainable future? Um, besides the reasons, It's important that you know that why you want to commit into this. Because this is a very beautiful career. It's a beautiful way of living, but it comes with a lot of sacrifices. Um, And I think that the way that you move forward is always looking back to what motivates you, what's your driving force. And from there, you can start to build a strategy to raise awareness, communicating, advocating. I think that advocacy, from Twitter, to writing a letter in your local newspaper, to voting, all of those options, and the ones in between them, um, can help you to position your career and your passion. And again, your motivation to do this. And and again, remember that disasters are not natural, which means we are all co-responsible. And we all own risk, so it is about our choices on how do we impact. It does not depend if you're in a private or public sector, an NGO. We have the opportunity and also the responsibility to build more resilient, more stronger and overall more sustainable communities. So again, I think that the, the way of impacting is to be true to yourselves, know what's your motivation, be passionate about it, advocate, and always have in mind that you're taking the chance to build a better future.
0: Yeah, so interesting. And I think um, it's been a really interesting discussion today, and I think that's really the essence of it. I think I'll take away today from the governance and the transparent approach, and I think that passion for making change has really come come clear through our, our conversation. It's been great chatting and learning more about disaster risk management in Chile, and we've shared a few photos on our website at memyselfdisaster.com that people can check out if they're interested in learning more about your journey. And we've also, through that, shown your diverse career and experience in disaster management, which is really fascinating to talk about today. Today. We're looking forward to talking more again on the show, Cristobal, soon. There's probably more we could talk about. I mean, there's plenty of hours of content here to, to discuss and, and hear more. But thanks so much for joining us on the show today, and we'll see you soon in Chile. Well,
2: thank you very much, Andrew Josh. And, of course, anytime you're happy to come here
0: to Chile. We'll be there soon. <laughs> thanks. Cheers. Wow, what a
1: in-depth conversation today we really covered a lot in the disaster risk reduction space but i think for me what really hit home was about that element of transparency and it's something that i hope our listeners were listening to intently if we really want to engage with communities if we want to effectively and efficiently reduce disaster risk in our communities we need to be transparent about how we give information how we communicate information and how we make information accessible
0: yeah josh i think I really took away a lot from today's conversation and I think what uh, has just rung true from all the research we've been reading and the people we've been speaking to on the podcast that that governance is the key way to reduce the disaster risk to communities and we've seen that in Chile with their model that's been recognised by UNDRR. It's the way to do it about having really strong governance in everything you do so I think that's just like out of everything we've learned today that's the key takeaway for me.
1: That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to guests from across the globe about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then.
0: Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.